Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 31. Sparta. In the next two chapters, we will take a look at the two most important of the polys, the ones which would come to dominate the Greek world during the Archaic period. In the next chapter, we will look at the rise and success of Athens. In this chapter, we will see how things developed in Athens' great rival, Sparta. In ancient times, the area which came to be known as Sparta was called Lacedaemon. In Greek myth, it is said to have been founded by a man called Lacedaemon, the son of Zeus and Tegeti, who married a girl called Sparta, the daughter of Eurytas. Sparta was located in the southern Peloponnese, which made it the most southerly of the major polys on the Greek mainland. The city buildings were not that impressive. The poet Thucydides said that suppose the city of Sparta were to become deserted, it would be difficult to believe the Spartans were as powerful as they were. Sparta had been inhabited since the Mycenaean times, and the area was taken over by the Dorians in the 900s BC. Sparta was a very unusual polis. Most of the city-states in Greece had done away with kings and were ruled by people being elected to office. In Sparta, though, it was different. They kept up the tradition of having a king as a ruler. But they didn't just have one king. No, Sparta was ruled by two kings. One was simply not enough. The kings, though, did not have total power. They were responsible for religious activities and for leading the Spartans in battle, but they were not all-powerful. The Spartans were divided into different classes of people. The most important, after the kings of course, were the citizens or equals. These were known as the Spartiates. Next, there were the people who inhabited the villages outside Sparta and were of a lower rank than the Spartiates. These were known as the Perioikoi, which is a lovely word and literally means people who live around. Right at the bottom were people called the Helots. The Helots were owned by the community as a whole and were not owned by single people. They worked the land and had to give half of what they grew to the Spartiates, but they were not slaves in the same way as slaves in other Greek cities. There were far more Helots in Sparta than there were of any other people. As Sparta developed, the way the Spartiates governed themselves changed. Five men were elected to be ephors, people who worked with the kings to oversee the government. Soon, there was a council of elders, made up of all Spartiate men over the age of 60. The council prepared plans for decisions to be made and for new laws. When they were ready, the laws or decisions were presented to the people who had the right to say yes or no. The people who had the right to say yes or no were called the demos. The final power to say yes or no was called the kratos. It is from these two words we get the modern word democracy, which means government by the people. Spartan government was not real democracy, though. The king and council of elders made all the decisions and were in charge of the rules and of the law. The Spartiates could only say yes or no. The Perioikoi and the Helots, and the women, of course, had no say at all. The Spartans were very different from the inhabitants of the other polys, in many other ways, too. They didn't go colonising, like the Thebans or the Corinthians. They only founded one colony overseas, Tarentum in Italy. They were much more concerned with affairs locally, and particularly with the development of their army. It is for their military strength and the work that went into keeping that strength that the Spartans are most remembered. Life wasn't much fun for a young Spartan boy. If a very young child looked weak or disabled, then it would be left out on a hillside to die or thrown off a cliff. 
From the age of seven, each young Spartan boy was taken away from his home and his training began. He spent all of his time with the trainees, including eating and sleeping. He was forced to sleep outdoors on a hard board of wood. He was encouraged to steal things to develop his cunning. If he stole something and brought it back to his trainer, he was praised. If he was caught stealing, he was savagely punished. It wasn't wrong for a trainee to steal in Sparta, but it was wrong to get caught. The trainees had to go through tests to show how manly they were. They sometimes had to go without food for long times. They were thrown out into the countryside to survive on their own. If they survived, then it showed they were men. If they didn't survive, it showed that they were dead. Each boy was given an older man, usually one aged 18, as his buddy. The buddy would train, eat and sleep alongside the boy. This would carry on until the older man was about 30 and allowed to get married. By this time the younger one was about 18 and he took on a younger child as his buddy, so the whole thing started again. By the time a Spartan boy reached 18, he was a very well-trained warrior. Every year there was competition and the best warriors were chosen to become hippies or knights. There were about 300 knights and they formed the King's Guard. We will hear a lot more about the Spartan knights when we learn about the Battle of Thermopylae later in our story. The way the Spartans trained their men turned them into the best fighting force in Greece. The men were forbidden to do anything other than be warriors and prepare for war. Each was given a plot of land farmed by helots so they had some income and enough food. The plots of land were owned by the warriors and then could be sold to other Spartiates. In later years, much of the land came to be owned by a small group of rich men. Life wasn't too much fun for the girls either. They were also trained, this time in dancing, running and other sports, and they were taught how to be good wives. Unlike the men though, they were allowed to live at home. When a Spartan woman reached her mid-twenties, she was expected to marry. Like many other things in Sparta, marriage was a bit odd. The lucky bride would wait at her house for her chosen husband to arrive. When he did, he brought flowers and chocolates and many beautiful presents, which he set down lovingly at her feet. Wait a minute, this doesn't sound very Spartan, does it? There's not much toughness and violence in that, is there? No, and it is certainly not what happened. What actually happened was this. The man would kidnap the bride from her family and make to run off with her, dragging her by her hair. The bride's family then cut the poor girl's hair short and made her put on a man's cloak and sandals to show her change in status from single to married. The whole purpose for a married woman was to produce a few healthy sons so that the Spartan army would continue to be strong. The way the Spartans lived and trained has given the English language yet another word. Living a hard life without many possessions, doing lots of hard work and not having much fun is called living a Spartan life. Not much is known about any of the rulers and leaders of Sparta in the early Archaic period. We know a fair bit about how the Spartans lived and how they ruled themselves, but we don't know a lot about the leaders. There is one, though, who was well known enough to be mentioned by later writers. His name was Lycurgus. Lycurgus was one of the kings of Sparta, but he was accused of plotting to kill his nephew. Lycurgus denied the charges, but he decided not to stay around and fight, so he left and went to live on the island of Crete, where he learned about government. He was away for many years. He also visited Ionia and read the poems of Homer. It is said that he travelled all the way to Egypt to see how the ancient kingdom was run.
After a few years, the Spartans realised they wanted Lycurgus to be their king, and begged him to return. After consulting with the oracle at Delphi, he returned in triumph and reformed the government, creating ephors and the Council of Elders. It is said that he also introduced the training of the men and making them all live together in one place. He is seen as the founder of Spartan values and of their way of doing things. The story of Lycurgus is a nice one, and the Spartans held on to it. Sadly, it is unlikely that much of it is true. It is probable that a king called Lycurgus existed at some point, but the Spartan way of life almost certainly developed over a period of years and was not introduced by one man. What is certainly true, though, is that the Spartan way of life produced the best-trained, most powerful and scariest army in ancient Greece. Not only were the soldiers well-trained, they had a battle formation which was very successful. The formation was known as the hoplite phalanx. It may not have been invented in Sparta, but the Spartans took it and made it their own. This battle formation was used with a few minor changes for about 500 years, pretty much until the Romans invented the legion. So, what was a hoplite phalanx? The hoplite phalanx of archaic Greece was a formation in which the soldiers, who were called hoplites, would line up in ranks, one behind the next. The front rank of hoplites would lock their shields together, and the first few ranks of soldiers would stick their spears out over the first rank of shields. The phalanx, therefore, had a huge shield wall and a mass of spear points facing the enemy. This made it very hard to attack a phalanx from the front. It also allowed a large number of soldiers to take part in the fighting. It wasn't only those at the front who could stick their spears into enemy soldiers. Hoplites from quite a few ranks back could also have a go. The hoplite phalanx was used by most of the Greek city-states. Battles between two phalanx usually took place in open, flat plains where it was easier to advance and stay in formation. Hills or rough ground would have made it difficult to keep in line. As a result, battles between Greek city-states would not take place in strategic locations. Most of the time, the two opposing sides would find the most suitable piece of land where the conflict could be settled. The Spartans were very, very good at employing the hoplite phalanx in battle, and they started to put it to very good use. In the mid-700s, they began to look at their neighbouring polys, and they decided that they wanted them. Next to the polis of Sparta was a polis called Messenia. There were many stated reasons for the Spartans to go to war with Messenia, but really it was simply that the Spartans wanted more land and Messenia was in the right place. In about 743 BC, a commander called Alcmene assembled his forces. He spoke to them encouragingly, saying they must swear an oath that they would not stop fighting until Messenia had been taken, no matter how long it took or how many lives it cost. The soldiers swore the oath, and the Spartans went to war. The war's first battle was a Spartan attack. They launched themselves on the city of Amphia. They marched quickly to the gates of the city and found them open. There were no defenders. The attack was completely unexpected. The first sign the poor Amphians had of war was the Spartans waking people up so they'd know they were about to be killed. Some fled, but most of the men died. The Spartans sacked the city and then filled it with hoplites ready to attack the rest of Messenia. The Messenian women and children were captured, and the men who had survived the massacre were sold into slavery. All in all, it was a very successful attack by the Spartans, and they were mightily pleased with themselves. The king of Messenia, Euphes, spoke to his people in the capital. 
He told them they must defend themselves and every man should be ready to fight. Then he began to train the fighters. Four years later he was ready. The Spartans had been taking farmland from Messenia and it was clear that this couldn't continue. After building a camp in a ravine between the two polys, Euphase settled down to plan the next part of the war. He had prevented the Spartans from getting any further, but he hadn't defeated them or taken back any land. He had to wait another year for a full battle. He probably wished he hadn't bothered. The Spartan hoplite phalanx was too strong. It was a spiky, killing machine, and most of Euphase's army was slaughtered. The rest fled. A few years later, Messenia was taken by the Spartans. The war for Messenia was called the First Messenian War. Oh, this means there must have been another one, doesn't it? Maybe the victory wasn't complete enough. Well, that was partly the case. The Messenians who had survived the First War were enslaved by the Spartans and became helots. The Second Messenian War was caused by an uprising of the helots against their new masters. The Messenian helots were supported by the Argives, who were the people from the nearby polis of Argus. The war lasted 40 years, but the Spartans, of course, came out on top. It was after this war that the training of the young men became even tougher. The Spartans did not intend to have so much trouble when they next fought a war. At the beginning of the 6th century BC, the Spartans began to look at their other neighbours. The Spartan kings, Leon and Agasicles, made a vigorous attack on Tegea, the most powerful of the cities of Arcadia. At the beginning of hostilities between Sparta and Tegea, things didn't go too well for the Spartans. They suffered a bad defeat at the Battle of the Fetters. The Spartans decided to change their policy a bit. Instead of attacking Tegea, killing loads of people and making the rest slaves, they decided to take over by making Tegea subject to Sparta. They would leave the Tegeans to run their own affairs, but recognise the Spartans ruled over them. This was a bit like forming an alliance, although everyone knew the Spartans were the ones in charge. They succeeded, and the result was the building up of an alliance of city-states led by Sparta, called the Peloponnesian League. The Peloponnesian League was a great thing for the Spartans. Now that Tegea was under their control, they had the chance to put everything into defeating the Argives. It is this war against Argus which led to a curious event known as the Battle of the Champions. Sparta and Argus were fighting con for control of an area of land known as the Thyrian Plains. A few small battles had taken place but they had not been decisive. The two sides agreed that instead of another major war taking place, the outcome should be decided by just 300 champion hoplites from each side. They would fight to the death and the side with any survivors would be declared the winner of the war. It was agreed, and the resulting battle was called the Battle of the Champions, or the Battle of the Six Hundred. The battle was amazingly hard and fierce. The killing was unmerciful. Each side would not allow there to be any survivors for any reason. Any injured hoplites did not receive any medical attention, as it was a fight to the death and both sides had too much to lose. By the end of the day, 597 of the 600 combatants were dead. Two exhausted archives were left standing when the fighting was over. They looked out over the battlefield with weary eyes and saw nothing but dead people. There was no movement at all. They searched around to make completely sure there were no survivors and then left to return to Argos to inform the leaders of their victory. But they botched the job. They made a ridiculous blunder. 
They had looked out over the battlefield, but they had not looked hard enough. A Spartan hoplite called Orthriades was terribly wounded, but was still just about alive. With the last two surviving Argives gone, Orthriades was technically the last surviving member from either army left on the battlefield. He survived long enough to inform his baggage handlers and witnesses to the battle that he, Orthriades, was indeed alive and that all of the Argives were gone. He proclaimed himself victor of the battle in the name of Sparta, and then, to celebrate, fell down dead on the spot. The Spartans made up a story that he had bravely killed himself, as he was ashamed that he was the only survivor. This was almost certainly not true, but it allowed the Spartans to pretend they hadn't been killed by an Argive. So, the battle that was fought to make sure there were result was a result, and save the lives of the rest of the armies, didn't have a result that both sides agreed on. In that respect, the Battle of the Champions was a complete failure. Both sides now claimed absolute victory. The Argives argued that they had won the battle and had the last man, men standing. The Spartans argued the Argives left the battlefield and that their man was alive when they left, and so proclaimed himself victor. There were no Argives left on the battlefield to oppose him. The battle was supposed to be the final decider to end the hostilities. In fact, it ended up confusing the situation even more than before. It solved two-thirds of nothing and only increased the anger between the two city-states. Soon afterwards, aggression between the two would flare up again. There were a good few more battles between the two sides and it would take until 505 BC for the final battle to occur. The Spartans had captured the cities of Phigalia and Hera, as well as conquering Pylos and Methone. Around the year 505 BC, Sparta and Argos went to war again. No reason is known for this war, but by this time there was so much bad blood between the two, any reason would have been good enough. Cleomenes of Sparta advanced his army into Argolis, but he had failed to take Ar Argos itself. Later in the same year, he again defeated the Argive army, this time near Sepia. The fleeing Argives attempted to take sacred refuge in a holy grove of the mythical hero Argos. Cleomenes did the unthinkable and set fire to the grove. The Argives were either killed in the fire or driven out and killed by the Spartans. In the end, the Argive casualties numbered 6,000, over two-thirds of the entire Argive army. The Spartans had the entire male population of Argos executed to make sure there would be no need for another war. The Spartans had won. So, Sparta became the most powerful polis in the Peloponnese. Far away in Asia Minor, though, the Ionian Greeks were in trouble. The great Persian Empire had been expanding, and in the middle of the 6th century BC, they invaded Greek territory. The Persian leader, Cyrus the Great, completely, completely conquered Ionia in 547 BC. The Persians struggled to rule the independent-minded cities of Ionia, and they appointed tyrants to rule each of them. This didn't go down very well with the Greeks. Before long, a full-scale war broke out. The Spartans would play a key role in the fighting. In chapter 33, we will find out what happened. In the next chapter, though, we will look at the rise and rise of Spartan's greatest rival, Athens. Until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.